Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. And if uh, uh, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class, so uh, those children who are participating in that can make your way to the back room there. Our volunteer leaders will be there to meet you. And as they're making their way there again, uh, if you want to be turning to Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be in verses 1 through 10 this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. So let me read our passage for us this morning, and then as we do every week, we'll pause and take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help. So Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to be able to gather here together this morning. We are, uh, we are indeed thankful for a weekend, uh, a holiday weekend of Uh, just taking an opportunity to be with family and friends and give thanks to you, the creator, the author of life, the king of the universe, and our redeemer through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we are gathered here this morning because of Christ and because of him alone. And so we acknowledge our unworthiness to be here this morning. We know that we only deserve your wrath and judgment and condemnation, yet in Christ you have shown us overwhelming mercy and patience and long-suffering and grace. And so, Father, I pray that you would use everything that happens this morning, our time of reading your word and praying over your word and singing the truth of your word together, that you would use all of it to fix our hearts and minds and eyes on things above this morning, on Jesus Christ And Father, we pray that you would come, as you have promised to do, that you would come, dwell among us, and be at work in us for the glory of your name, that 
through the spirit that you have sent to dwell in us, you would awaken us to the truth of your word this morning, that we would see the glories of Christ on display and that we would be changed by it for our good and for the glory of your name. And so, Father, once more this week, we plead with you and ask for your help. I ask again, Father, that you would guide my words, that you would allow me to only speak what is true of you, what is true of your word, that um, no one would be led astray this morning, but instead we would be led to the ultimate realities, the ultimate truths that your word speaks to us this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we approach the uh, Christmas season, well, I guess we're not approaching the Christmas season anymore, are we? We are officially in the Christmas season. As we are in the season, as we approach Christmas Day, uh, I usually wait until uh, the kind of the two Sundays closest to Christmas to, to preach Christmas sermons, but God in his providence had other plans for us this morning that we would be in this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, on a Sunday leading up to Christmas. Now, I think many of you will read this and not really think this is a Christmas passage, but this is a fully Christmas passage. It is about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word incarnation meaning Jesus, the eternal divine Son of God, coming to earth in the flesh. That's what the word incarnation means, and that's exactly what this passage is about. And I can't think of a better way to kick off the Christmas season as we began, as we, uh, began Advent this morning than to look at these truths about the incarnation that is given to us in this passage this morning. I mean, the reality is, as Christians, as we enter into the Christmas season, we are indeed excited about celebrating the birth of Christ, and, and we should be, right? We should be full of joy about the opportunity to do that very thing over the next few weeks. And we fully embrace, Lord willing, Lord willing, we fully embrace the reality that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who at a point in time chose to become a man by supernaturally taking on flesh and being born to Mary. And we read the glories of that Christmas story in the Gospels and, and we rehearse them every year as we ought to do, how an angel visited Mary and told her of what was to come, that, that she would bear a son. And then the angel goes and reveals the plan to Joseph as well. And we read how they had to travel to Bethlehem because of the census and that there was no room in the inn where they were seeking uh, a room and board. And so they were put into a stable of sorts where, in fact, Jesus was born. And, and we know he was laid in a manger and swaddling claws as we just sang about. And we read about the host of angels, right, announcing the birth to the shepherds that he has arrived, telling him. And then down the road, the wise men eventually arrive following the star to Jesus. Right? I love the Christmas story in all of its forms. I love rehearsing it and reading the story with our family on Christmas morning. But this morning, we're going to go behind the story. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 10 takes us behind the scenes of the Christmas story and helps us understand why it all had to happen in the first place. It's kind of like those crazy movie buffs, right, who who for some reason of their own freedom and volition choose to watch a movie 
with the director's commentary over the top of the movie. Instead of listening to the actual movie, they listen to the director talk about the movie, right? Talk about why they made these decisions in certain scenes, what was happening in the scene, how this person was feeling that day, how many takes it took to create that scene, right? You hear all the background of how they created the movie. Well, Hebrews 10, 1 through 10 is giving us the author of life, the director of history's viewpoint on why Christmas needed to happen on why Jesus needed to take on flesh, on why the incarnation took place. So with this passage, we're not walking through the narrative of the Christmas story. Instead, as I said, we are, we're getting behind the scenes and Lord willing, answering the question, why did Christ need to take on flesh and be born as a human baby laid in a manger? So that's the question this passage answers for us this morning. Why did the incarnation need to happen? Why Christmas? And to answer that question, I want to provide two relatively simple answers from this passage, and then we'll walk through those answers. That that will be our outline. So here's the two answers to that question. Why Christmas? Why the incarnation? Answer number one. The sacrificial system left humanity in sin. The sacrificial system left humanity in sin. And then number two, because God desired a better sacrifice. Because God desired a better sacrifice. So answer number one to why Christmas. And by the way, as we... As we, as we go through these two answers, my, my prayer is, for all of us, my own heart included, is, this, that, is that this sets the context for the Christmas season, right? That this puts a foundation under our feet to meditate on throughout the Christmas season on why we are celebrating what we're celebrating. Why did this have to happen in the first place? So, so why Christmas? Answer number one, the sacrificial system left humanity in sin. Right? Look there again at verses 1 through 4, particularly verse 1 for now of Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, the ultimate main statement in verses 1 through 4, if you leave out all the prepositions and everything else going on around it, the main statement is this. The law can never make perfect those who draw near. That's the truth being proclaimed in verses 1 through 4. The law can never make perfect those who draw near. And everything else surrounding that, those words in verses 1 through 4 is explaining to us why that is. It's the author of Hebrews making an argument for why it is true that the law can never make perfect those who draw near. But this is the main problem that was facing humanity, that faced Israel in particular. 
is that the sacrificial system left them and it left us in our sins. It can never make us perfect. It can never deal with our guilty conscience. It can never free us of the condemnation that we deserved because of our sins. And it was that very reality that was the, the main obstacle in our way of communing with God, of actually drawing near to God, of being with him for all eternity is the guilt of our sin, the reality of our sin, and the condemnation that we deserved for it. So what exactly was the failing of the sacrificial system that left us in our sins? And then, of course, as we head into answer number two, we will see how the Christmas story seeks to rectify that situation. But what was the failing of the sacrificial system? Well, well, verse 1, the beginning of verse 1 gives us the first part of that answer, right? Why is it that the sacrificial system left us in our sins? Well, it says there in verse 1, because it was a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Now, the good things to come, we've already learned previously in Hebrews that the good things to come is Jesus Christ himself, right? That has been clear throughout the book of Hebrews. It starts right at the beginning of the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, his son is the good things to come. It is him. And Hebrews has made that clear, right? The son is more glorious than the angels. He's more glorious than Moses. He's more glorious than the old sacrificial system. He is the great high priest. He is the good things to come. The Christ, his cross, and his resurrection are the good things to come. And what verse 1 is saying to us is that the law was but a shadow of those realities of Christ who was to come later. It was intended to be a shadow of the work of Christ. Well, what is the author of Hebrews getting at here? Well, we've learned over the past few weeks that when the tabernacle was erected, when the tabernacle was built, that it was based on a pattern shown to Moses on the mountain, right? A, a heavenly pattern. There was a, a greater and more perfect tent in the heavenly places. Uh, Hebrews tells us that it was not made with hands. In fact, that it was not even of this creation, that there was a true form in the heavenly places on which the tabernacle, the, the construction of the tabernacle was based. And now we're being reminded that not just the structure, but even the sacrificial system itself has a reality on which it was built, namely Jesus Christ. But that system was a shadow pointing us to something else. Right? When, when you see a shadow, you can make out kind of something of what is behind the shadow, right? If you hold your hand up in front of a light, you fully expect to see the shape of a hand on the wall, right? And as you look at that shape on the wall, it represents the shape of your hand. The shadow is not your hand, but it points to that reality that is casting the shadow on the wall. The shadow can't sign a check for you, right? It can't actually do anything, but it points you to the reality behind it. 
In fact, there are even other situations where, right, if you put your hand in front of the light, you, you're the one putting your hand there, so you know the shadow on the wall is going to be a hand. But there are other situations where you may see a shadow having no idea what the reality behind it is, but because you see the shadow, you have a sense of what you're looking at, right? So just the other day, I, I recall I was outside and I saw this huge shadow go over the ground of, of, a, of a large bird, right? And so when I looked up into the sky, what did I expect to see? I didn't expect to see a bear flying in the sky, right? When you see a shadow of a bird go over, well, this was a particular, like you're not going to see a shadow of a robin, right? It was a, it was a big bird and you look up, you expect to see like a, a hawk, an eagle, a vulture or something. And in fact, I look up and that's, that's what you see, right? The shadow, the shape of it gave a hint and clue as to the true form that was behind it. So the author is saying to us, look, the, the sacrificial system was not the reality, it pointed to something beyond itself. Now, it had the shape of the reality, right? It pointed to something. It, it let us know, look, sin is going to, sin deserves death. Sin requires the shedding of blood to be covered. Sin requires, if you're going to have forgiveness, it requires a substitute to stand in your place. Right? It, it let us know these things, but it was not the reality. It simply pointed to the reality. In other words, it was never meant to be an end in itself. Therefore, the author says to us that it could never, verse 1, because it was a shadow and not the reality, it could never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. It didn't matter how many they offered, how often they offered it, or how many years they kept on offering it. It could never make the people who offered the sacrifice perfect because it was simply a shadow and not the reality. Now, it does not mean the shadow was useless Right? It doesn't mean that God didn't have a plan for the shadow. The shadow served a purpose. It was supposed to point us to something else. It was supposed to teach us about the redemption that was to come in Jesus Christ. But it can never, it can never make perfect because it was never intended to. And then the author makes his point even more emphatically clear when he argues that otherwise, if this wasn't the case, if it could have made perfect, then we should have expected these sacrifices to stop being offered. You see that there in verse 2. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Meaning, had the law actually made people perfect, we should have expected the sacrificial system to stop because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Now, the ESV uses the word consciousness. The NIV translates this, I think, in a little bit of a more helpful way because I think the word consciousness here can, can be somewhat confusing when it says, had it made us perfect, we would no longer have any consciousness of sins, as if to say, when the perfect sacrifice finally comes, we're going to have no remembrance of sin, right? That's, but that's not what the word is getting at here when it uses the word consciousness. What it's getting at is that had, had it actually been able to achieve perfection, they would have no longer had any guilt over sin, 
right? A guilty conscience is what the passage is getting at here. It would have cleansed them of that guilt, right? It would have, it would have cleansed them. They purify them of that guilt because their sin they would have known would have been dealt with. But because they knew their sin had not been dealt with, the guilt carried on, the shame carried on, and so therefore the sacrifices continued year after year after year. In other words, the author is saying that the very actions, the very way the sacrificial system is set up demonstrates its failure. The fact that it had to keep happening shows that it can never accomplish redemption. It can never accomplish perfection. It can never do the very thing that we needed most which was to purify our conscience from dead works, as we learned earlier. Why? Because, again, the law was only a shadow of the good thing. It was only a, represent, a representation of the real thing, but it could never accomplish redemption. So just coming off of Thanksgiving and all the hard work so many people put into preparing meals, like it, it made me think, you know, it's kind of like the law is like an easy-bake oven, right? Well, what is an easy bake oven, right? It's a toy. It's something children have, and you can actually use it for things, right? You can actually, believe it or not, they let children play with the device hot enough to cook, actually cook food in, right? And they put food in it, and it cooks like a little tiny bit of food, right? But can you imagine preparing Thanksgiving dinner in an easy bake oven? Right? You would never be able to do it. Why? Why would you not be able to do it? It's an oven and it can cook things because it wasn't designed to prepare meals for families, right? But it points to something else for those children, right? It, it, it reminds them this is what cooking is like. It's pointing them to one day having their right gourmet oven in their kitchen, right? But that's not what it is. It's a shadow. It's, a, it's, a, it's an imitation of the reality, which is exactly what the sacrificial system was for us. It was, it was a way for humanity to uh, approach God, but always and only a shadow, because ultimately, verses 3 and 4 says, in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year. For because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin because they were never intended to. It was always meant to point to something else. You see, ultimately in the sacrificial system, it was never really about the animals to begin with. It was never about the action of killing an animal and shedding its blood and burning it on the altar. What it was about was the faith of the individual who brought the sacrifice forward. It was about the faith of bringing it forward and saying, with this sacrifice, I am acknowledging that I need salvation. I need redemption. That's why I'm offering this. And I know this action doesn't achieve it. I know only you and your mercy and grace, Father, can achieve that for me. But I'm offering this as a symbol, as a representation of my faith on the altar. That's what it was intended to do is to be an action of faith on the part of the, of the one who was repenting of their sin and confessing their sins through this action of, of making these sacrifices on the altar. But you see, the problem was the history of humanity, the history of Israel shows that that rarely, almost never happened. 
Instead, the history of Israel is one of idolatry and debauchery and rebellion and wickedness and living their life that way and thinking, well, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to pursue every pleasure that I can imagine Regardless of the law, I'm going to be prideful and greedy and materialistic. And then I'm just going to go deal with it by slitting the throat of an animal and throwing it on the altar. And I'll be good to go. It's what God was talking about. It's what the prophet Isaiah was talking about. In Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 when he compares Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. That's not ultimately, God says, that's not ultimately what I'm after, What I'm after is your heart and your faith and your trust in me as your authoritative king and merciful God. But ultimately, ultimately this whole system was a shadow that was to point to a greater reality as they offered the sacrifices. They were to be calling out on the redemption that would one day come as an expression of their faith in the hopeful mercy of God, but instead, as verse, uh, as verse uh, 3 tells us, but instead in these sacrifices, it simply reminded them of their sins and the guilt that they bore for them every single year. And yet God's desire remained to redeem, to justify, and sanctify his people. Therefore, He desired a better sacrifice. So why Christmas? Answer number one, because the law left us in our sins. It was a shadow of the reality. It could never achieve redemption. It was a reminder of sin every year, but the blood of goats and bulls can never take away sins. And so answer number two to why Christmas is God desired a better sacrifice. Sacrifice. Look there with me, beginning in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then verse 5 continues. But I just want to pause here on that one word. And the ESV is rendered consequently. Some other translations render it therefore, but it's the same meaning. Consequently, therefore. So, so because the sacrificial system left us in our sins, because the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sins, because that was true, consequently, therefore, Christ came into the world. Now, we just need to to pause on that word, consequently, or therefore, for a few moments. Because there is unimaginable grace and mercy oozing out of that word. Right? It's presumptive to think, well, the blood of goats and bulls can't take away our sins, so God, you have to send a Savior. No, that's not what he had to do. 
He didn't have to do it at all. We didn't deserve it. We certainly didn't earn it. Right, what it should say, if God were a perfectly just God and gave us perfectly, and God is a perfectly just God, but if he, he gave us what we deserved for our sins and didn't provide justice to be fulfilled another way, then what verse 5 should say is, therefore God condemned humanity to hell for eternity. That's what the therefore should say. So let's not take for granted that God's response to the inability of the sacrificial system to deal with our sins was to therefore send his son into the world so that he could remain just by placing our condemnation and punishment on Christ as he took our sins on himself and the justifier of those who have faith in him. So therefore, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then the author of Hebrews quotes there, <clears throat> excuse me, Psalm 40. So he's taking this section of Psalm 40 and he's putting it on the lips of Jesus. <clears throat> So he is saying that this was Jesus speaking. Jesus Christ comes into the world and he says this. And this is basically a conversation between the son and the father. Jesus speaking to God the father. And he says in verse 5, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, what does it mean there in verse 5, in the middle of verse 5, when it says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, right? A cynic could say, well, God, you spent a lot of time in the Old Testament telling us how you desire sacrifices and offerings, right? You gave us a whole law full of sacrifices. Well, again, the point is what we mentioned earlier, that what God wanted was sacrifices offered in faith, but that was never done. He grew weary of their sacrifices and offerings because they were just going through the motions, kind of an action done on the part of his people. And he says, look, that's not what I want. It's not that I want bloody dead animals on an altar. That's not it. Those things can't accomplish redemption anyway. What we need is an act, an actual act that can save us, that the act itself is effective to save. You see, the act itself of shedding the blood of goats and bulls can never take away sin, but there, what we need is there to be an act that could. And so verse 5 says, look, it's not the sacrifices and offerings that, that you want, but what is it? What does Jesus say that the Father wants? But a body you have prepared for me. You see, the sacrifice of the eternal divine Son of God could do what the law never could. The sacrifice of the Son of God in flesh could accomplish what the blood of goats and bulls could never accomplish. Just think about that phrase for a moment. 
that Jesus says to the Father, but a body you have prepared for me. The body of Christ, supernaturally prepared and formed in the womb of Mary, was prepared for the very purpose of being offered as a sacrifice for sins on the cross. That was the whole reason Jesus had to have a body because a spirit cannot die. Even our spirits ultimately don't cease to exist, right? Don't die. You dwell for all eternity in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. Glorified bodies, our spirits are redeemed and we are resurrected with our bodies or we live forever. Well, we don't live forever. We die forever, but exist forever, dying forever, condemned to hell and death. Spirits don't die Therefore, Jesus being spirit form as God needed to take on flesh. He had to have a body to die for us. And so God prepares a body for him so that he could lay down his life in our place. You see, the birth of Christ that we celebrate this Christmas is God bringing his sacrificial lamb into the world. And verse 6 goes on to tell us that, look, it's not about the burnt offerings. It's not about the sin offerings. Again, God has taken no pleasure in those things. They could not take away sin. Therefore, a body had to be prepared for Jesus. And so the conclusion in verse 7 from Jesus is this. Then I said, quote, this is Jesus saying this. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. A body you've prepared for me to lay down, to offer as a sacrifice on the cross, and I'm ready to fulfill it. I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to obey your will, Father, for the glory of your name. I've come to do your will, O God. And so the author then, in verses 8 through 10, takes this quote from Psalm 40 and he's basically explaining it to us. It's a little mini exposition, right? A mini sermon from the author of Hebrews on Psalm 40. And he says in verse 8, when he said above, referring to what he just quoted from Psalm 40, when he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he adds, behold, I have come to do your will. So he says, when when Jesus said those things, what what did he mean? Well, he's going to tell us right there in the second half of verse 9. When he says those things, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. What does he mean by that? What he means is, he is when, when Christ declares this to be true, when Christ arrives on the scene, when Christ lays down his life, the body that was prepared for him, when that happens, he does away with the first. He does away with the sacrificial system. It's no longer something under which we must live. He does away with it in order to establish the second. And what is the second? That Jesus came to do the will of the Father and to lay down his life on the cross for the redemption of his people. And by that will, verse 10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once 
for all. So let's, let's start at the end here and just work our way backwards for a minute to be sure we're understanding how it is, what, what exactly the author of Hebrews is explaining to us in verses 8 through 10. So he says there in verse 10 that, that by that will, the will of Jesus wanting, to obey, Jesus wanting to obey the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So that phrase, once for all, is picking up on the reality that, as we saw earlier in verses 1 through 4, that they had to continually offer sacrifice over and over and over and over again. But when Jesus arrives, there's no repetition, right? It is a once for all sacrifice, and, and it means once for all time. This passage in particular is not talking about the objects of the cross. It's not talking about once for all people. It, what it means is once for all Time And that's clarified just a little bit later in verse 14 of Hebrews 10 when it says, For by single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, so the argument that's being made is that, is that here the author is saying the offering of the body of Jesus Christ is a once for all time sacrifice, never to, repeated, never to be repeated, never needing to be repeated. Therefore, it is superior to the sacrificial system. It is the reality to which the shadow was pointing. It is sufficient as a once for all time sacrifice. And it was by offering the body of Jesus Christ on the cross, this body that had been prepared for him, the eternal Son of God, who lived forever in eternity, in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, willingly took on flesh, took on the body that was prepared for him, and offered it up on the cross. And in offering up his body, he took our sins on himself and took the wrath of God the Father on himself to stand in our place as our substitute and shed his blood once for all. And it is by that act, by Jesus being obedient to the will of the Father, verse 10 says, that we have been sanctified. Now, let me clarify a bit how I think the word sanctified, how it seems the word sanctified is being used here in this passage because in almost every other place, if not every other place in Scripture, the word sanctified refers to the ongoing process throughout our lives of becoming more like Jesus, right? It is a, it is a process we go through that we never finish till the day we die or Christ returns when we look Jesus in the face, <clears throat> And we're finally transformed into his likeness, right? But until that day, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. Until that day, we go through a continual process of sanctification. But yet, verse 10 is saying that by that will we have been, past tense, already completely sanctified. So, so, so what does that mean? Because I don't know about you, but I already proved like yesterday that I'm not sanctified, right? <laughs> I've not yet arrived at holiness. Well, it seems that the word sanctified here is being used in the terms of we've been set apart, right? We've been, quote, made holy in the sense of things in the temple were made holy. They were set apart for usefulness in God's kingdom. And because 
through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have been declared righteous, right? We have been justified because of that reality. We have been set apart. We have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 14 uses the word sanctified in the other way. We read that earlier, chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected, right, meaning justified, declared to be righteous. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being, right, continually, ongoing, sanctified. Now we're going to dive deep into that verse next week, but I just want you to see it there for now, that that's typically the way the Bible uses sanctified. So I just didn't want you to be confused by verse 10 and how it was using the word sanctified there in that context. But the point ultimately is when Jesus offered his body on the cross, he took the wrath of God in our place so that we could be freed of the guilt and condemnation for our sins. And verse 10 says that this act sanctified us, that it set us apart as the adopted children of God. And because of this once for all act of offering up his body on the cross in our place, he has established now that the way to the Father is through the cross. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. That's why Jesus said what in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If anyone comes to the Father, they must come through me. It is now established that there is no middle ground, right? There's no hedging between the two options. There's no, well, I'm going to trust in Christ, but also continue to offer some sacrifice to see if that will appease God, right? No, no. He did away with the first. It's done away with. There are no other paths to God, right? There's no other options. There's, you don't have to lean on your own attempts at righteousness and good works, right? No, what has been established is that Christ has died for our sins. He has cleansed us. He has declared us to be righteous. We stand righteous before God because of the righteous life of Christ that is imputed to us. We are forgiven fully and freely by the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is what has been established for us. So remember what the author mentioned earlier that every year in the sacrificial system there was a reminder of sins. Well, that language reminds me that we do something here in this church because the Bible commands us to do so with regularity as a reminder, right? We gather around the Lord's table as a reminder, right? What did Jesus say about the Lord's table? Do this, what? In remembrance of me. So we're reminded of the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross where he, his body was broken and his blood was shed. And we eat of the broken bread, symbolizing the broken body. And we, we eat of the juice, symbolizing the spilled blood of Christ. But what does Jesus say? Do this as a reminder of your sins? No. Do this as a reminder of your Savior. Do this as a reminder. Do this in remembrance of me. Look to me. I've paid the debt. I've completed the work that the blood of goats and bulls can never complete. And so we don't do it every year as a reminder of our sins. We do it as a reminder of our 
glorious Savior. You see, as we celebrate Christmas, we should be reminded that Christmas exists because we were so wicked and rebellious that God's perfect law couldn't even contain us. So therefore, he was willing to prepare the perfect sacrifice with his own hands. He was willing to give the eternal Son of God a body that could be slain for us. That's the story of Christmas. That we were so wicked, it took the Son of God dying for us to redeem us. As we conclude here, this, of course, reminds me of the story in Genesis 22 of God telling Abraham to go up on the mountain and to offer his only son, the son of promise, as a sacrifice. His son Isaac, right? That God, they had waited decades on. Look, I want you to take Isaac up on the mountain and offer him to me. And so Abraham and Isaac make their way toward the mountain. Isaac is carrying the wood that he will be burned on. And they make their way up the mountain by themselves. It's just Abraham and Isaac up there on the mountain. And Genesis 22 tells us that Abraham built the altar, piled on the wood, bound Isaac, tied him up, laid him on top of the wood on the altar. Right? Get, get that image in your head. And Abraham reached over and grabbed the knife. It's in his hand. And when he laid his hand on the knife, God spoke and stopped him. He says, no, no. You've now demonstrated your faith and trust in me. And then Abraham looks up and caught in the thicket is a ram, right? The substitute, the sacrifice that was to come in place of Isaac. And Genesis 22 tells us that therefore Abraham offered this ram on the altar that was prepared instead of his son Isaac. Now, I love that story. It points to the cross. But as I was reflecting on Hebrews 10, here's the real power behind this story as we reflect on this passage this morning. God told Abraham, not your son, but the ram. And now God says to us, not the ram, but my son. That's the Christmas story. Not the ram, but my son, here he is. Not a ram caught in a thicket, but my son born in a major. He's the one I've provided for you. He's the body I've prepared for you. He is the one who offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice in our place. Christmas exists because the law left us in our sins. But God, being filled with grace and mercy, provided a better sacrifice by preparing a body for Jesus that he might stand in our place as a sacrifice on the cross. 
Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your wisdom and your word. It is so rich and full of meaning as you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. As your word speaks to thousands of years of history and shows us how you were orchestrating it all along and how the whole sacrificial system that you commanded, that you brought into being, was intended to be a shadow to point us to the reality of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would protect any of us from returning to the shadows, but instead keep our eyes on Jesus at all times and in every way, that he has arrived, that he is the true form of these realities. And Father, as we celebrate Christmas and as we hear stories of, of Jesus being born in the stable and being laid in a manger, I pray that this image would be seared in our conscience, Father, that that, that baby laying in a manger was the body that you prepared for Jesus to lay down on the cross. That is ultimately the glorious story of Christmas. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us opportunities to speak of this story to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our families. Father, what an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Not in the ways we typically talk at Christmas, but in the ways that expose them to the realities and the truths of the gospel. That Christ came to be a lamb in our place. Father, keep that truth deep in our hearts this Christmas season. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.